This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. This week, I have Jill Johnson-Young. She is a licensed clinical social worker, former hospice social worker and administrator, and co-founded a large group private practice in Riverside in Murrieta, California. She also teaches courses for therapists and allied health professionals on grief and loss and dementia, and is the author of five books for adults and children on grief. She also provides a free monthly dementia support group online and does a Facebook group chat with Deborah Joy Hart every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Jill is all grief and loss and dementia with a smile and a positive outlook after being widowed twice and finding her own new life twice. She is now married to a funeral home director. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You have a book, the You're the Rebellious Widow. All the time. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a practical guide to love and life after loss. And so let's, I imagine that's what brings you to Grieving Voices. And, it is indeed. Um, I, I reached out because I saw you and heard your podcast. And I, I love having a chance to share the story and the idea that grief is something you can come out of and come on, come out of the other side and make really good positive changes as a result of it and still keep your loved one with you. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a death sentence for the one still living, right? It doesn't. It's not Rose Kennedy. That quote that she has is just, it mashes at me every time I hear it. And, and what is and that I'll, again? She has a quote. Know. This says something about um, love is grief is the measure of your love and you will grieve forever if you love them. Mm. And that's just not true. I mean, yeah. it can be if you choose to, but it doesn't have to be true. Well, and the thing about that quote is, is that not all relationships are loving, but that doesn't right. mean you don't experience grief in, in less than loving relationships. In fact, they're the ones that are hardest. Yes, to do. <laughs> absolutely. That's a true testament to loving those that are hard to love, right? Right. Or who yeah. didn't ever love us in the way that we needed them to. Exactly. Yeah. Right? I think we're on the same page there for sure. Let's dig into it. What's, what is your story? Well, I was married to Linda for 23 years, and she had breast cancer in the first 10 years. We were told in a, on a July morning after a routine mammogram, ladies, don't forget your mammogram, routine mammogram, something the size of a pea sitting on her chest wall was stage three with 14 positive nodes. Um, she had a mammogram. They did an ultrasound. They called in a surgeon right then and there, care that you don't get anymore. Um, And within a month, she'd had a mastectomy. She'd asked for bilateral. The surgeon refused. 
she asked for a port in that surgery because she knew I worked for hospice at the time. I took her scans to our doc. We knew it was serious. The surgeon wouldn't do it. So she had to have two surgeries in the space of five days. We went to see the oncologist behind his back because he wouldn't release her to oncology because he said she's not going to need chemo. You have 14 positive nodes, folks, you need chemo. And the oncologist looked at us and said, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw everything at this, but you're going to be dead by December. And, you know, you sort of feel like the floor pulls out from under you. That date of diagnosis is a real thing. There's two DODs in our world. The date you get the diagnosis and the date they die. And so we went to work. They did throw everything at her. She had to work all the way through chemo because we lived in Florida at the time and we didn't have benefits that we could cover each other. She went back to work two days after that mastectomy with the drains in place. And she was a warrior and she beat the cancer. She died cancer free. What she didn't do. Right. And she was so proud of that. So proud of it. What she didn't do was uh, beat the pulmonary fibrosis, which was brought on by the chemotherapy, Mm. which was absolutely necessary and gave us 10 more years than we would have had and time to adopt our kids and, you know, time to have another full half of our life together. But ultimately, um, one of the medicines that she was given causes loss of heart and lung function. And she died of pulmonary fibrosis, fibrosis and heart failure um, after 20, close to 23 years. We were just shy of that. Um, she was 58 years old. And while she was um, dying, she was on hospice because I was a hospice social worker. And of course, we're going to have hospice and we're going to have it sooner than later because I'm a hospice social worker. And I asked for hospice. One of her nurses was um, very unique. She walked up to our door the first day and she had a very deep Southern drawl. And she said, um, my name is Casper. I'm your hospice nurse. And I thought, oh, my God, the friendly ghost is now the hospice nurse. And it's a crazy house with two kids. A third we were in the process of adopting at 16. You know, I don't know how many cats and dogs and other creatures we had in the house. Okay, now we've got the friendly ghost. This fits. They turned out to be good friends. They hung out together. Casper came over while I was at work. I didn't even know about it. They had the same background. They drank the same icky, horrible chocolate sodas. Um, they, They were two peas in a pod. And ultimately, before Linda died, she told everybody who would listen that she wanted me to marry Casper after her death. And I kept saying, yeah, Fantasy Island was canceled, except now it's back. Did you know that? There's a new Fantasy Island. Yes. And uh, we both said no. Um, She died a very peaceful death, which I'm very grateful for. And Casper was there attending at the time she died. And uh, I broke all the widow rules. We went out for coffee. It turned out Linda was right. Um, We ended up married. Uh, I lost some people because... Every time someone dies, you lose people. You don't just lose the person who dies. You lose other people that either disappear during the illness because terminal illness is scary, or they disappear and vote with their feet because they don't like how you grieve. You're not doing, you're doing it too fast, too slow, too this, not enough of that. They disappear and they vote with their feet. But when you're a widow and you remarry, yeah, they really vote with their feet. Um, And Casper and I were married and we had... Um, a wonderful time together. And then six months in, we were on a lanai in Hawaii and she threw her coffee cup 
and she'd had weird dreams that night. And coffee time at our house is sacrosanct, right? You don't interrupt it. You don't speak for the first cup. And there goes the coffee cup. And I said, what was that? And she said, I don't know. My hand did that by itself. And that was Louis Body Dementia announcing mm-hmm. itself. Um, so she was having psychotic episodes immediately. She was having memory loss. She lost her ability to smile almost immediately. Louis Body comes on like gangbusters, um, especially early onset. And so she, uh, she and I spent almost three years looking for doctors, looking for the right diagnosis. I finally suggested the diagnosis to the doctor. Um, and he agreed that it was Louis body. We looked at the scans. You could see the Louis bodies on the, the, the brainstem and she died um, within three and a half years mm-hmm. and her death was not peaceful. And part of the per- people who stuck in there with me to help take care of her um, and who took care of Linda, she met with Linda and me to make her final arrangements, came and took Linda from our home after she died. She also made arrangements for Casper um, with Stacy, the funeral director. And she also saw my posts. I wrote blogs the whole time they were sick and dying because I didn't have time to talk to people. Right. I'm a therapist as a social worker. I don't know any therapists who talk on the phone voluntarily after hours anyway. I won't. Unless it's my mom or my kids, the phone is not going to get answered. So um, Stacy started seeing how hard things were and started coming by in the evenings so I could take a nap. We had Casper's brother, Jay, staying with us, and he was helping. And then I would stay up all night with her because she wasn't safe. And ultimately, after Casper's death, Stacy and I married. And so that makes me a rebellious widow times two. Wow. wow. So we do That's... grief and loss all the time. Um, some of our date nights were in the prep room. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, interesting we hear, life. <laughs> we hear of, I first of all, to love once and lose that person is one thing. But to love twice and lose both, that's an entirely different experience that I don't know anything about. And so it stinks, um, but you know what? I can't imagine to have been loved that intensely twice. And then a third time, I mean, very few people find the kind of love that I had with either one of them. And I've had three, I no complaints. And each one of them sent me off into my next life. Literally. That's what I was going to say. It. That, that's what I was going to say. It's like you, you hear stories and like the choices and decisions we make often lead to the next thing that we can't even often see mm-hmm. in the future. We don't even ex- anticipate or expect it, but, but I've never heard it with relationships like that kind of happening in that way. And so that's pretty remarkable and the stars aligned. They did. They did. Yeah. I, neither one of them would have wanted me to be alone. As Linda was especially adamant um, because she just did. She, I had three teenage girls. They were a year apart. I was in the middle of adopting a 16 year old. So, yeah, she knew that that help was needed and she knew the kids liked Gasper. And how did you manage their emotions and your emotions and Linda's emotions as she knew what was coming and Casper's emotions, because, you know, obviously I'm sure that the children were very familiar with Casper and a part of her life as well. And so it's not just your loss twice, 
Oh, no, there were multiple losses for all yeah. of us. Yeah. And the reason I was adopting my 16-year-old is she's the half-sibling to my youngest. And their birth mother had died um, mm. in the fall before. And we discovered she was back in foster care in L.A. And so we took placement of her. Um, and Linda very much wanted to adopt her. She was on the bucket list. So she was placed with us for, placed with us for adoption before Linda's death. And then I adopted her as a single parent. So there were lots of emotions. And in our house, we talk really openly when it comes to death and dying. Um, the kids had already lost grandparents. My 16-year-old had lost both of her parents. She was an orphan when she was placed with me. So it was a no secrets, no holds barred. We did have some behavior from a couple of them, but the behavior preceded all of this. I mean, can you imagine? I mean... Yeah. You know, you kind of got to give some grace there. It's like, you know, pain and anger and, and hurt and all of that. You you expect that there's going to be some sort of way to channel all of that. The weird part was after Linda died, before the kids knew that Casper and I were secretly dating, I would go to work and I taught classes in the evening. So I'd get home at like 10 o'clock at night and her car would be out front. and. I didn't even know she was there and I'd walk in and she had this funny smirk on her face. And she said, yeah, they called and said there was a medical emergency and the medical emergencies were a tummy ache or a friend had a medical crisis and they needed Casper to come over and counsel the friend. And what they were doing was testing her because she'd said openly to Linda, I am not promising anything other than I will stand by your family after your death. And so they tested and tested and tested. And they were pretty secure with her before they realized we were dating. They, they knew they could count on her. And that was a huge blessing that they did it on their own. Right. Right. And I think don't children often do that to feel they secure? Do. They'll they test do. And they'll test to feel, to see, well, how are you going to match your words with your actions? Right. Right. And then the Not acting just, out ones would, would truly act out. And she would put on that very Southern butch, you know, you did what? Right. And give them the look. And uh, yeah, there, there was a whole new behavior pattern of, okay, I need to change this up because there's somebody else watching too. And she has more energy than mom does right now. So, yeah, it was, it worked out. And they were, my, my oldest child still uses Casper's name um, in a lot of places and online because she's very, very loyal to her. And it wasn't that she wasn't loyal to her first mom, mm -hmm. right? And then they all lost their birth parents, of course. So yeah. my kiddos know how to do grief and loss, but they do it with grace. And probably better than most adults. Way better than most adults. The funny part is my... And I, and I don't want to say better. I want to say healthier, maybe in a healthier way. They're able to talk about death. They're able yeah. to talk about grief. They're able to support people who've had losses. Um, my little one now lives in Kansas and will text me and say, Mom, so-and-so has something going on. Can Can you give me some things to say to her? And I told her about you and can she call you? And they're not afraid to jump in. Mm -hmm. My middle one just finished her master's 
Um, so she's working on her LMFT license now. And she took the grief and loss class in her school and didn't tell me. I said, now, why didn't you tell me? She said, because I knew what you'd say. I said, let me guess. They did five stages. And she said, that's all they did, mom. And I said, and what did you say? She said, I realized I could talk back and not graduate, or I could absorb it and then tell my friends what was real outside of class. And so that is what she settled on, right? So she's going to be a really terrific therapist, hopefully for foster kids, which is her goal, which is working with another kind of loss, right? Right. Yeah, I was even going to ask you if any of them are have goals of following in your footsteps, but there you go. Yeah. Charity had that goal before she arrived. She, yeah. she'd been in group home care and foster care. She wants to make a difference in that way. The little one is going to be a nurse, hopefully and Linda steps, Casper steps. And our eldest is um, a super helper at home and um, works for us part-time in my office and helps care for my elderly mom. Um, Which is another caregiving one oh one. Well, and, and grief, grief experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are you still sitting upright? <laughs> I have a great sense of humor. Um, and I have an outlook that is probably more positive than most. But I really see grief and loss as a place of growth. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I don't want anyone to sit in grief. Yeah. I, I don't. It's not healthy. It causes premature death. Yep. It causes illness. It's it's not good for us. And it doesn't, in the way I see the world, do much for maintaining the memory of the person who died in a positive way. I get to talk about Linda and Casper, you know, frequently. Uh, their pictures are in the classes that I teach when I talk about uh, approaching death. Their stories are in my books. Uh, the poodles are too, for that matter. And um, they they get to stay with me in an active way, but in a healthy, active way. Right? So for those listening who weren't set up emotionally, <laughs> right? Emotionally to endure all of this loss that you had, but you had this education and this background and this knowledge to support you. You had resources at your disposal, support possibly that many people may not have. What do you say to those people listening? You know, I get those questions all the time because of my presence on social media. Um, And number one, if you were in the loss process, ask for help, raise that white flag, identify where those people are because there's usually one or two helpers lurking that we don't even recognize. Bring them into your circle and make them part of it. Apologize. You know, lean on the people who were there. Uh, do some journaling so that you have a place to put the emotions and where you can also start to reorganize your life. And in the, the loss process, when you are grieving, Again, look for other people who have a positive outlook that you can not so much latch on to, but partner up with someone who can just hear you talk about what happened. Look for someone who can help you understand what you've been through, because frequently and far more frequently these days, which I don't understand, 
uh, people are not being told their loved one is dying. Mm-hmm. They're not being prepared. They're not being taught what the dying process looks like. That's a huge issue. It's a letdown. It's a secondary loss. And if ever there's a cause for anger that burns, that's the one. And it doesn't have to be there. Right? Hospice referrals are being made two days or a day before death in general. I just got my um, former brother-in-law into hospice last week. And it happened because I had places that I could pull, right? And I, I pulled out all the stops and called directors one-to-one. I need this hospice for him. I need these things. Most people don't have that. So find the helpers and find the people in the same spaces who are in a healthy grief process. I look at grief as giving you the, the best card in the world to throw down, which is I'm grieving. You don't get to tell me what to do. I'm going to decide what my life is going to look like now because I just had a major loss and it doesn't have to be a spouse. That could be any loss. That could be your number one pet, especially if you're a solo individual, that pet is your heart. And when that pet dies, you've lost the person who meets you when you come home at night, right? Or the person you wake up to just like a spouse. So you get to throw that card down and say, it's my turn to decide where I want to go with my life. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot because I can, I can put myself in the shoes of a new griever who's listening to this. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to you and you're telling me not to stay in my grief, Mm -hmm. right? It's not healthy. It's, and then you're telling me to seek help. And then you're Mm -hmm. telling me to, and I'm I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not, you know, yeah. Cause I'm on the same page as you keep that Mm -hmm. in mind. So I can, cause I can just see the eye rolls. Someone who is listening we're it's like, it's not like we're telling them what to do, right? You're no. not telling them what to do or how to grieve. And you can tell somebody you don't have to stay in that place. How do you help somebody see in themselves, like someone listening to this, that yes, you can grieve your grieve your own way. Mm-hmm. But how do you get to that point where enough is enough? How do you see that it's just been, this has been way too long? Like I've been feeling this way way too long, right? Because you and I are in the same space, right? Right. Get to the other side of this. You don't have to suffer. But like not in things. a hurry and on your own schedule. Right. But how much time, because I, was a 30 plus year griever before I woke up before I waved the white flag. I mean, I try, I waved the white flag, you know, a few times and it didn't work for me, whatever I tried. So, you know, that kind of, you give up then, right? Right. You think mm-hmm. this is just how it is. This is what I'm, I guess this is what life is like. And so you give up in a way. Mm-hmm. What do you say to someone to help them see that what they're losing is more precious is just creating more suffering because they're losing their own time. They're losing their own time. Like I lost a lot of time in and my they're giving life. up all their energy to grief. 
yes. instead of being able to invest it in others and themselves and relationships. Yeah. Right. And, and so we talk about where does your energy go? And is that really where you want it to be? Because if you're seeking help from me, that means that you have a change you want to make. And I also really am clear that when I talk about finishing grief and it's finishing that relationship with that person, it's finishing all the undone stuff. And if you've waited 30 years to do it or six months to do it, there's stuff left, Mm -hmm. right? I had a lot more stuff left with Casper because she had dementia. So we had some time to talk, but we had a much shorter relationship. So there was a lot more left to do. Linda and I had a full and complete relationship. And we had three years to get ready for her death. So we Mm -hmm. could talk and we did all night, every night, because she was a night worker. So we had that time. So what I say is, let's look at where your energy is going. Let's look at what you really want for the rest of your life. And let's look at how you want to honor your loved one in your new life you didn't ask for because you're taking them with you. We don't leave them behind us. They sit right with us. That's why I reference Casper and Linda being in my books and in my um, education programs because they go with. Right? They're not my primary relationship, but they're always there. Because and that emotional gr- connection doesn't is just always go going away. to be there. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's not to diss Stacy. That's to say there's space for everybody. You know, it's not a pie. It, everybody's got space. Grievers want to hear that I'm not expecting and that somebody else is not expecting them to stop loving or caring or remembering the person who died. Because that's the scary part in my experience. No, I, I don't want to give them up. You're not going to. And it's also not about condoning whatever it is that happened to them. That is creating Mm-mm. the grief in their life of a less than loving relationship too. That goes both ways. Yeah. Right, right. If it's a, the, I work with lots of people who've had deaths of parents who weren't even present. Mm-hmm. And that's made it so conflictual for them because they're losing the potential of ever having that relationship. And then certainly the ones who've had abusive relationships or chronically awful relationships, those things are things that need to be worked through because otherwise they stay with that relationship and you can't finish. So what do you say? Cause I, I see this and I hear this a lot too in the grief space online and things with grievers is that I don't need to dig up the past. I look at what past is still there. Yeah. So we right. work on make a list, make bubbles, make whatever you want, however you want to construct it. Show me this relationship you had. All the things that took place that are still in your head. All the good. Mm-hmm. Right? What's the good? Even if it's just they gave birth to me and I eventually got to another family. Right? Tell me the good. And then tell me the conflict. Tell me the stuff that was bad. And let's finish that stuff. Let's work on figuring out what you wanted to say to them. And what apologies they owed you. Or are you conflicted because of the way they died? And you feel like you have some apologies to make yourself. Did did you guys have a conflictual relationship and you had a fight 
just before they got into that car accident. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff there too that needs to be worked out. I'm just curious. Did you happen to go through the grief recovery method? I went through the two and a half day intensive. I used okay. some of their materials. I don't agree with all of it, but I like a lot of it. But through it with Russell. Okay. So, yeah, but it's, it's, I like a lot of it. Some of the stuff they talk about in terms of um, avoiding grief or um, he still lived by the rule of you need to wait a year before there's a new relationship. And that's not the experience that research bears out for people who've lost a a partner after a long-term illness. The research says the opposite of that. Actually, I actually don't know. That wasn't in my training. That was what, that was part of his training. So uh, he and I had a a, a go around on that one. (laughs) So, you know, about an hour over lunch one day. So, yeah, use parts of it. Don't use parts of it. I use uh, the companioning stuff. Um, Mostly I do a lot of, use a lot of research on what it is that grievers say that they need and what helps them get to the other side. And so part of that is really excellent stuff. So what are some of those things? The finishing parts, mm-hmm. that is part of their language. Um, it's also part of the companioning language. And I really like the, you really don't have to grieve forever because so many grief leaders who are therapists won't let go of that language. They still maintain it. And then they say they don't. And then you watch a video and there they are saying it again. And those are powerful words and they hurt people. Yeah, I actually, I had to put in my two cents on a post I saw once where the person who counsels people in grief had shared something to the effect how they don't use the words healing or recovery or things like that. And I thought, wow, that's really a disservice to people because then they believe that how they're feeling is really that's how just the, how they're always going to feel like that. It's not possible That's forever for them. Yeah. You're telling someone that it's not possible. And I, as a rebellious type of person too, right? and you too, it's like, don't tell me what's impossible. <laughs> right? and don't tell me I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life. Right. Right. When I have a new client come in now, generally they find me. And so they already know that I'm that rebellious widow. Um, and they, you can see my writings and hear me on podcasts and things. So they find somebody that, that matches where they want to be, but they're still got people in their ear. Lots of them saying, Oh no, if, if you stop grieving, it means you didn't love them enough. You aren't being loyal to them. You're moving too fast. That means you didn't care enough. It might mean that I'm just freaking exhausted, Mm -hmm. right? Caregivers get tired. And if you're one of those people who has been a caregiver and you're listening, I get that. You are tired. And however you want to take care of you and regain your energy and your strength, you do that. And set the boundaries around the people who want to tell you what to do. Grief work is so much about boundaries. Boundaries. Oh, my gosh. Right? It's all the boundaries. And that's part of what's missing. Russell kind of implies it and John kind of implies it. But I'm all about the K-rails. You put those K-rails three high. And you don't let other people tell you how you're going to do this or what the outcome's going to be. It's your choice. I naturally found my boundaries and where I didn't have them and how to do that 
because of grief recovery, you know, because mm-hmm. of that, it, yeah, it was huge for me. I want to get your thoughts on this because the grief space, I'll just say on Instagram in particular, it's really kind of heartbreaking for me. Oh, try um, Pinterest. Ugh. Really? Oh, oh, when I Is teach that- therapists, I say, go right this minute, pull your phones out, go to, go to Pinterest and tell me and put the word grief in and tell me what you see. And it's Rose Kennedy all over the place. And grief is a measure of your love. And you're going to, and then there's these therapists who say, you're going to, you're going to grieve for half as long as the relationship. Well, holy crap. If we were married 50 years, I got no hope. Wow. There's, there's, there there isn't a diagram and there's no formula. Stop it. Yeah. They're all horrible about that. So yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, the two of them are like neck and neck with horrible. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really on Pinterest, but yeah, I, it's so heartbreaking for me because I see so many new grievers or newer grievers and they're on there and they start an account and they're yes. Share openly communicate how you're feeling. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of community, like getting it out there, like having an outlet for that, but it's what is it? Does that feed into like the response and the reaction? Does that feed into that perpetual sorrow? Does like, how does that move you forward? You're it's almost as if I've said this before in other podcast episodes, it's almost as if the, with COVID, especially like the in-person support groups, that don't have like an action plan or aren't moving you forward have moved online. And they're so devastatingly awful for people. Yes. That's what keeps people stuck. I tell therapists that I'm training, you need to lurk in the grief support groups and, you know, first ask permission, of course, to get in, but follow them, see which ones are healthy because they change personalities like weekly, monthly. One that's healthy now is, completely unhealthy three weeks later because somebody jumps in there and starts attacking everybody. And so they leave and the attacker stays. Yeah. It's, it's, it can be a very unhealthy space. So how can, can you communicate then with listeners how to discern where is the healthy space to be online? Like how to discern that for themselves? What is, what are the markers or what is, what are the things to look for? in a healthy grief space online in general, if you're going into general grief spaces, because there are those that are specific to specific losses, but in any of those spaces, you're looking for one where if someone says I'm having a good day or I really want to feel better or someone give me some ideas about how I can, where they're the healthy ones are people who support them in wanting to make change. The unhealthy ones, they are all in on, what are you talking about? You're not being loyal to your loved one. You're, you're not going to feel better. This is what grief is. This, is. this is how we hold on to their memory. You're looking for the ones who won't allow for growth. And then I want you to run from them. And go to another one where there is room for growth. And there are some right? Those groups split frequently. Uh, I I get to be in all the groups because I've had so many losses. And so I'm in the parent loss support group because I've lost my dad. And I'm in the widows and I'm in the lesbian widows. I'm in all the groups. 
And there's a lesbian widows group that just split into three groups because one group wants to stay in the unhealthy, you have to grieve space. And one group wants to include more, a more broad, a more general group of people. And one group wants to keep it just this space. So it's easy to lose groups. And that's another loss. Look for the healthy ones. Mm -hmm. Well, because you develop connections then with people and, you know, it can be one comment that just, yeah, social media can be heartbreaking and heartwarming. Yeah. I can. Yeah. I, I, I'm a huge proponent too, of just like really, I think too, and you can agree or disagree, but as you start working through the layers, like you really start to come back to your own intuition and your own sense of agency. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I found for myself. You take you back. Yeah. And you take the you back. Like when you're doing grief work, one of the things that I like to do with people when I do groups is we spend that last day working on a, where am I going now board? Not a vision board because those have, you know, those are usually money and big things. Who did you used to be before all of this? And what parts of that you do you want back? What did you want to do when you were five years old? Right? Maybe you went horseback riding as a kid and you haven't done it since then. Do you want to get back on a horse? You get to decide where you get to go and what brings you joy now. And you get to go find that and do that and not listen to those who tell you you can't have joy because you should be able to. That's one of my questions. And I'll ask that at the end of uh-huh. joy, but I want to kind of start at the beginning of your story mm-hmm. and as a child, because your grief didn't just start with the passing of Linda and I'm sure of it. So oh no, no. What, who was <clears throat> Jill before you became a licensed social worker and like, how did you come to be? Into I grew this- I grew up in a family where I had the oldest dad in the classroom, right? Everyone sort of thought he was grandpa. He's 10 years older than my mom. And so I had a lot of older relatives because everyone in his family had large spans between spouses, right? And so with that, there were lots of people who died and lots of deaths and illnesses. And in my family, it was the norm to attend those and to bring the children. My mom was a preacher's kid from way back when. My dad was a farm kid. Death was part of life. And so you did it together as a family. And so I um, what, I took a quarter off of college when my dad's sister was dying, who was a beloved aunt, and was there at the hospital with her. And when my grandmothers were dying, my grandfather's, You did that as a family. When a pet died, you had a funeral, right? When a pet had a birthday, you had a birthday party. That was not farm kid. That was California kids, right? (laughs) Distinct differences. There's a picture of me when I was little conducting a funeral with the neighborhood kids for some creature that we'd apparently found dead on the sidewalk or something. We live on a hillside. And um, that was part of life for us. So death wasn't scary. Grief was normal. You, you grieve people, and then you reemerged from it. When my mom's dad died, that my grandparents lived in a senior community with um, little patio homes. And 
about a month after my grandfather's death, she said, we got to change this up. So we went over there. We pulled her table outside. We took invitations to probably 50 people in the community. And we had tea and desserts out on her patio and reintroduced grandma to the community as Lily, not Lily and Elmer. Because that was part of life. That's really what shaped me. I became the first social worker for our local AIDS project way back in the day. I was there before we had a quilt and before Ryan White. And we used to take our our clients from hospitals to a shelter because their families wouldn't take them. And we would lose them within two weeks to four months. So it was constant loss. And you had to learn to surf the losses and grieve together and laugh together and move into the next one. And from there, it, it just stuck. I did CPS for a, while, for a long time, which is you know, child welfare is all the losses. My kids are all adopted, lots of losses there. And then hospice is where, I, where my heart lives. And that's why I do grief and loss work because, you know, if I could still be on the road as a hospice social worker, I probably would, but I can't. And I think I have a bigger impact with what I'm doing now. Wow. That's, yeah. I think often our professions and where we find ourselves in life is a reflection of our childhoods. Yes. Um, through what we've experienced and endured and. Mm-hmm. Really, too, like you said, what was normalized for us, you know, you found that that's a gift that you can give others is to normalize it for other people as much it as it absolutely was normalized is. For you. Yeah. My mom was the caregiver for all the grandparents. She took care of every one of them, except for my grandfather, who died very suddenly before I was born. And um, my grandmother on my mom's side was a nurse and my grandparents ran a nursing home for many years. So I think it's probably genetic. <laughs> yeah. Do you think a lot of the issues we face today in death and dying is that there is this separatism that is created? Um, you know, even just like, okay, you're married to a funeral director, right? Like we're so separated from death. Like we, we hand it off to someone else to take care of the details. Um they die in the hospital or in the nursing home by themselves often, especially in COVID. Especially like that's, now. That's it's not healthy. Horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible for everybody involved. It absolutely is. And so what's the trade-off here that we're giving? Like, what is this? We aren't going to, I don't believe we're going to know really the true impact of this for probably another five to seven years. If that. Um, yeah. I, you know, and especially with hospice, which isn't really a resource that is readily available. I'm very rural. I'm in North Dakota, very rural. It's just not accessible. Where do we start in society to kind of get back to that, make it a family? And can we, right? Because if we're so bogged down with our own grief, how can we support someone else? How can we? And I think that's this why I'm so passionate about changing the narrative around grief, right? Because if we, you are a better service to your loved ones, if you are healthy, right? Mind, body, spirit. Mm -hmm. And you can't help someone else with a loss if you aren't in a good space. Right. So is all of this separatism, it's just kind of a product of that. We've so sanitized illness 
and made an expectation that people don't die, that we're not comfortable with it anymore. You know, at our house growing up, we talked about death and illness at the dinner table. That was normal, right? Probably to an excessive degree because of my grandmother, but we, um, because she loved to talk about it, but that was normal. And when I sit down with, you know, regular people who are not grief people and, you know, you make a joke about death, the look on their faces, oh my God, right? Because grief people have a distinct sense of humor that probably shouldn't be let out very often. That's why I like grief conferences because you're with your people, right? Um, Nurses and hospice people are like that too. But we talk about it and so many people don't. When I'm with Stacy and we're out in public and some before COVID, of course, and someone finds out she's a funeral director, in general, they step back about three to five feet like she's toxic or death is catching. And they'll say things like, do you touch dead people? Um, there's a woman who has a, a Facebook space um, called life is a mortician's wife. And she's hysterically funny. You haven't found her. Everybody should. Um, and one of her memes that she, that she replays frequently is, you know, Morty, her husband is the only mortician who works in a funeral home where there are no dead people. Of course you touch dead people, right? Because you're giving them the gift of a good goodbye for their family. Those are people who work of service, but it scares people. Yeah. Right. She's not the grim reaper. (laughs) How can you, right. They're they're not picking out who's going to die. They get the people who've already died, but they take good care of them. And all people can see is, ew, creepy, yucky. I don't think so. My own sister is like that, right? Unless you go to a social worker conference. Then Stacy is like the hot potato. Everyone wants to talk to the funeral director. Social workers are a little bit weird and proud of our weirdness. And she, <laughs> I have a table at one of those meetings and everybody wants to meet Stacy, right? Because, and they want to ask her about being a mortician and half of them wanted to be morticians. So yeah, I think we've sanitized it too much. It saddens me that in North Dakota, that's the experience because farm country used to be where death was normal, right? And neighbors pulled together. And when there was an illness, it happened at home and people came over and you were even embalmed at home. And, mm-hmm. and even if it's even gone in farm country, then we're way too sanitary because yeah. you should have that natural network. Well, and what do we do when someone is can't take care of themselves anymore? They go into a nursing home, right? They get Mm -hmm. segregated from the rest of the population. So it really comes down to how how can we build support within communities so that people can feel as a caregiver, A, that they're supported, that they would even want to have their loved one with them at home. Right. You know? Um, yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted issue. There's no it's a like, huge problem. We don't have financial support for caregivers in this country. No, you know, if, if you're on in all the grief groups and you're talking to someone from England or the Netherlands, they have grants for the family caregivers. Wow. So there's resources so they can stay home. They're not huge, but it makes the difference here in some States in California, we're quite blessed We have in-home supportive services, but you have to be poverty line or just above 
in order for your family caregiver to be paid to take care of you. If you're upper echelon, you can hire care. If you're Jill and you're having a spouse with an early onset illness and you're not retirement age yet, which is when we expect people somehow to all die, right? It's not true. People die lots of times before they're 65. Then you really do have to scramble to create the network that keeps someone home. And I happen to be able to pull it together. And we also have some hospices that have inpatient units, but that's not covered under Medicare or insurance. So again, unless that hospice has a fabulous fundraising arm, you have to be able to afford it because they have to be able to pay their people. Right? The hospice I worked for in Florida has six residential units now. And they have a wonderful fundraising arm. So if someone can't afford it, they can still come. And the couch pulls out into a bed. And there are volunteer cooks who come and take care of not only the patients, but also the patient family. So if the family and patient choose to have the death there, they have an extended family supporting them. Visiting hours are 24-7. If we could replicate that everywhere, how much further would we be in making death a much less traumatic experience for everybody. Yeah, I had gone through earlier this year, I went through a death doula certification, or death doula program. And um, yeah, I'm really in the process. Changed. Mm-hmm. Are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really changed my perspective on just the process of dying and how that can really be a beautiful experience. And it is beautiful if the family feels like they're a part of it. And the family knows what they're seeing and hearing. Yes. That's part of like, what I teach therapists. Every program, literally every program I teach, what one expect? hour of one session is going to be, this is what dying looks like from the yes. very beginning to the very end. And this is what it feels like when the oxygen gets turned off and the silence when that compressor is no longer going. We go through all of it and we go from the death rattle, which I just hate that term too, that's just fluid on a prone mm-hmm. vocal cord. And the person dying isn't hearing or feeling it, right? Because right. they have to know what, what really happened so they can unpack the trauma for the family who didn't have anyone educating them. Yeah. And you touched on that earlier too, just about how so often people aren't even told their loved one is dying. Right. Um, I had Dr. Chris Kerr, who was, did the, he was on surviving death and his right. hospice work is, you know, part of that Renowned. program. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what he said. We medicalized death. We've met it. We've just gotten to the point where we medicalized death, where you go to the hospital. Hosp- yep. It's last ditch effort is hospice. Well, I guess we've done what we can, you know, I've had we've so many patients come options. home and, you know, especially young women. And they've gone into some research program and they've said repeatedly, I want to get home to say goodbye to my kids. And they end up being delivered comatose in an ambulance Mm. and they die the next day and they never get to speak to their kids because the kids weren't welcome in the hospital setting. We we need to let people have the grace to be at home if that's what they choose. Well, and the impact of that on the kids. Right. Well, yeah. Right. It's better for kids to be able to crawl up in the hospital bed. And snuggle with mommy, because if she's going to die, that's the last snuggle they get. Let them have it. My dad died in a nursing home. 
when I was eight, you know, Oh my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm in school and he passed away in the nursing home and there was just nothing that could, there was no hospice. There just was no hospice. Um, And there should have been. Yeah. Because Dame Cecily Saunders has been doing this for a long time, right? We've had St. Christopher's hospice for forever, you know, and hospice is a grassroots movement. So we should have a hospice in every county. And if there were more nonprofit hospices, we would be much further along. In Florida, mm -hmm. go ahead. In Florida, you can only have one hospice per county. And if they need another one, the hospices are vetted and they get voted on. And they have to demonstrate that they do all the things that is required and that they don't spend their money marketing. They spend Mm. it in their families. Yeah, I was going to add too, like the veteran community too, the veterans. my dad was a veteran. And so he would receive his care at the VA hospital, which Mm -hmm. was, that was a three hour drive for us almost. And so I didn't, we didn't, I didn't get to see him that often as he was getting his care, but only just this year, I believe they have broken or they're raising money right now to kind of build like a Ronald McDonald house for the families of those veterans receiving care at the VA. And I'm thinking, boy, that was like, that was in the eighties. Right. And it's taken this long for there to be a facility for the family to be there with their loved ones. Like, whoa, like things move so slowly. It feels like in in this space. And especially looking at family support, everyone's about the patient, which they should be, but that the the entire family, part of the family is dying. Right. You support the family, you support support the the entire family and the patient needs to know the family is going to be okay. That's the greatest distress for a dying person is, are my loved ones going to be okay? Yeah. And if they're all stressed out, then the patient's all stressed out. Yeah. Let's support all of them. And there's angst, there's angst about dying then too, right? Like they can't, there's no dying in peace or with any sense of inner peace when they're just filled with worry and. Right. don't want to go and they don't have a choice and all the conflicting things, right? That's Instead they of Linda, grieving. who got to die at home, got to do the grieving ahead of time. We did the anticipatory grief. And then she actually picked the next wife. I mean, that's that's how it should be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. the standard. Reduce the stress for the patient, yeah. right? Coming back to your story, mm-hmm. what were some of the things that people, I know you kind of sprinkled in a few here and there, but what are some of the things that people said to you that were unhelpful and hurtful? Oh my goodness. Um, There were lots of things about how could I possibly support the children um, well enough if I was in a new relationship. When Linda was dying, there were, you know, lots of suggestions about get the kids out of the house. So they're not part of it. You're going to traumatize them. I'm like, no, mm -mm." when Linda was dying, I arranged to have an adult assigned to each child so that in those last days, if I needed to be all about Linda or to take a break, they had eyes on them that I could trust and that they were people who weren't going to say the stupid things to them, right? Mm -hmm. The kids heard a lot about this is part of a plan, you know, all the things that grievers hear before someone's died and afterward that aren't they lucky they have another angel? My middle kiddo and younger kiddo learned how to turn that one around like that. You know what? We got enough angels. We needed to keep this one here. God can have your angel. That's okay. 
Why don't you volunteer? Right. They are my children. You can tell. Um, (laughs) I heard um, a lot about, I wasn't grieving long enough, hard enough. I didn't look sad enough. And then I looked too happy at a wedding. I was told that people were there because they felt like they were obligated to, they disagreed with this. Like they got to vote. Right. We'd already had prop eight. Nobody else got to vote. We were all done with voting. Yeah. And I, I looked at those people and said, then you don't have to be here. All right. This is They're not your people. Yeah. This is my new life and you don't need to be part of it if that's how you're looking at it. And that may sound harsh, but I needed my family to be supported as a family. However, my family was defined in that moment. Right. And then, of course, also when someone's dying, you hear all the, oh, but there's this potion and there's that potion. And if you'd only done this, which tells that person you didn't do enough to support them and you didn't stop this death. Yeah. Right. All the things. And I've got a five page list. Yeah. Imagine, imagine your kids hearing that someone saying that (sighs) to you. And then thinking then, well, did you do enough? Like you could have saved her? Like, you know, then looking at you, like you failed them. Right. Oh, people just don't realize what they're saying. Right. I can't tell you how many times I heard pulmonary fibrosis is treatable with with a lung transplant. Well, partly that's because the Pulmonary Fibrosis Association keeps putting that out there. But um, lung transplant lists are long. Right. And if you have PF because of chemo, you don't qualify for a lung transplant. Because you've already killed your immune system. You don't know what you don't know. Right. You say that all the time. Like, I don't know what I don't know. Right. And that's where you're people just jump to those judgments and those those things without asking yourself. I right. say to yourself, I don't know what I don't know. Like, people have their reasons, right? Right. I mean, little people, I'm okay with that. My, my little niece, who adored Linda, called me one night and she said, I discovered there's a secondary list for injured organs that they can still use for people who aren't good candidates. We could get Aunt Linda used lungs, right? That's been a car accident, but might still work. And I appreciated how much love that involved. Has hope. Yes. She has hope and she wanted to save her auntie. And I had to explain why that wouldn't work, but she was looking, yeah. right? That kind of thing. I totally get. A full-grown adult coming in and saying, I have this laser thing that I can wave over her lungs. And if you'd let me do it last year, she'd be alive. Get out of my house. (laughs) Just get out. I think too, like some, it's, I think for the most part, people are well-meaning, like people are are well-meaning. It's, it's because I know I've been in that position, especially more so in the past, like you just, you just want to fix it. You, you want to say something. Yeah. You want to just help. You want right. to, well, maybe this will be the one thing that will, you know, change the situation or whatever, but yeah. And that's where I'm, that's why I said, I'm a huge proponent of intuition, your own intuition, your own discernment mm-hmm. and your own sense of agency. And, and if someone's violating it, let them slip out to the outer circles for a while. Cause what grievers really need it's just someone to listen to them. Yeah. You know, some judgment, space. criticism, anal- analysis, someone they can call and say, can you believe so-and-so just told me this? Right. And usually it's someone outside the family they need to talk to because it's the family that's saying the things. Yes. Yep. And, you, and frequently someone outside 
their house of faith if they have one, because that's where a lot of those things get said. Yeah. Right. They, they need a space where they can just talk about all the things they're hearing and the things they're considering without being judged for it. Just a really safe, secure space. So would that be your one tip? Find the space, allow yourself to have a sense of humor, allow yourself to laugh, get some sunshine. And I used to say, you can still go to Disney while you are grieving. You can still do that. Now I can't say that because COVID, even though it's open, I wouldn't say that because COVID because I had COVID, right? But I I say, you know, you need to find some joy still. You're allowed to. Linda died on Good Friday, quite mm. inconvenient. Better than dying on Easter. That would have been the absolute wrong message. But I had to do Easter baskets that Saturday. And being our family, we told her she couldn't die. Um, she died on the 2nd of April. That was where it fell that year. The 30th of March is my oldest daughter's adoption day. So Linda was quite cognizant and aware. And we're like, you can't die that day. You just, you can't wreck her day. She said, okay, I'm not going to die that day. We're going to, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. And then we said, man, you can't do April Fool's Day because that would just, nobody would believe us, right? Because you have a sense of humor and they're going to think we're lying. So you have to make it past Easter if you don't choose Good Friday. And so Good Friday at noon, she was gone. That's how our family works, grief and loss. But, you know, you have to be able to have that sense of humor after loss because otherwise you're going to sink. Yeah. So find someone you can laugh with and be disturbed with. Right. It's in there. (laughs) So you gave a lot of advice for those who are deep in grief now. But as a child, um, what was I mean, I know you, your family, you talked openly and things like that, but was there ever any, you like your earliest memory of something that, of a loss that you had mm-hmm. that stuck with you? Anything that was said to you that stuck with you? Advice or just phrase? I remember or- my dad companioning, right? We were at a, a funeral for someone. I don't remember who it was. He had one suit. He never wore suits. He had one suit. And that was the funeral suit. And I can still feel it because it had a very distinct um, kind of a texture. And he would put his arms around us, standing behind us in the seats under the tent at every funeral. And I remember him saying, this is okay. They got their life and we're going to remember them. And it's okay to cry. And then afterward, it's okay to be happy. Go get a cookie and go outside and play with your friends. Mm. Um, so it's that kind of lesson that you can, you can get through this. It's not going to be the end of you and you can still find happy. That's a a really strong memory. And I remember my mom saying, you know, sometimes doctors can't fix everything and we have to accept that there's limits and find a way to say goodbye instead. Those are powerful messages. And that was when I was maybe five or six. That is. I mean, it's, it was emulated for you that mm-hmm. it was okay to grieve. Yeah. And the polarity and of it's okay to be happy too in the same day, same that, time. Exactly. And that's the message that I, if we as adults can do grief better and make it normal, then our kids will watch us because that's how they learn. 
future generations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we That's can change part. it up. Yes. So I started yeah. this podcast. Yeah. Right. Ways did people support you that were most helpful to you? The folks who showed up and were just there, both during the dying and after. Um, the matzo ball soup delivery, the um, bringing Hawaiian flowers so we could have some scents that reminded us of happy moments, the over-the-top decorations for holidays that brought back the memories because they both died during the holiday periods, right? Mm -hmm. And those who would call me and tell me, I just defended you again. Don't listen if anyone's after you. You get Mm -hmm. to do this your way. Right. The ones I could call and say, I need to get rid of these clothes today. I just, I can't have them here anymore. And they would come. Those were the things it was, it was the doing and the holding space. And all of the grief that you've experienced, what would you say that it has taught you maybe about yourself and also just maybe about the human spirit? It has helped me find my resilience in a great big way. And I know we overuse that term, but it's in there for everybody. And um, with Linda's illnesses, plural, there were times that, you know, as the caregiver, I just felt so beat up, partly because of the way the medical community spoke to us. Mm. There were some harsh moments, but I was able to discover that I could turn things around and that we could find fun and happy and joy. And that was probably the biggest thing is I, I needed to know that I could still find joy in life and that joy was possible even in the midst of loss and the midst of grief. That was hugely important. The month after Linda died, we had prom and we had military ball and we had a teen dance. And the one going to prom, the boyfriend dropped her the day before prom because he said she'd be too sad at prom. You better believe I was a mad mama. Now they're married. Oh, my. (laughs) Wow. And they can laugh about it. Yeah. So, yeah, we can find our resilience. What do you say? This drives me nuts. So you already know now how I feel about it. But when people say that children are resilient. I think children are able to heal in their own ways and to grieve in the moments they need to grieve. Children don't grieve like adults. And the biggest disservice we give them is to expect them to grieve like adults. Teens too. Mm -hmm. Teens need to grieve with their teens, their friends, not with adults. They don't want to grieve with mom. They want to grieve with their friends. Um, And I think children are resilient, but I think we need to not count on that so much as to teach them what's happening and to give them space and permission to both cry and to laugh and to remember and to include the person who died in future. So at our house, everybody who's died gets an ornament on the Christmas tree. And at this point, our Christmas tree is like the memorial Christmas tree because every dog and cat and rabbit is on there too. Right. Mm -hmm. I Um, love that. I love that. Um, little tip for keeping that memory alive that's right neat there's some families that do like a holiday table thanksgiving where they do the handprint or something and you know write the name and the date that they're there and then the year that somebody's died they put them in a cloud in the center of the table 
And mm. so this, you have to be careful not to bleach or wash it with Tide, but that tablecloth becomes a living memory. And it actually brings those people back into the holiday every year. Because mm. you talk about them, you're reminded of them. And kids need that. They don't need to hear the, the name disappear. They need that name said. Yeah, when I think of resiliency, like as a child, for me personally, like I, I feel like children don't choose to be resilient. They're put in positions that of having to they be. have to having to be. Yeah. So that's where that's where it drives me nuts. It's not that oh, children yeah. are resilient. It's that they don't have a choice. We need to give them space to do what they need yeah. to do and to have the emotions that are theirs. Just like we want for adults. When you're grievous an adult, sometimes you're mad, sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're blah, sometimes you're empty, sometimes your head's just in a spin. Yeah. They're little people. They have the same things, just in smaller amounts. They just don't tell you because they're watching you. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, if I'm talking to a child who's just lost someone to COVID, and that's been frequent this year, have the parent on with them, and I'll say, so... Do you still have questions about what happened? And they'll look at their parent and say, just talk to me. It's okay. They nod their head. And the parent looks like looks at them like, I told you you could ask me. I said, mm. did you not ask because you were afraid to, you were going to make so-and-so sad or upset them? And they'd say yes, right? Because they're watching the grown-ups. Mm-hmm. So don't assume. Ask them what they're feeling and give them space for it. And give them time for it and hear them. I've actually had someone tell me that a mom told the child to not bring up grandpa's name because it made her sad. That's very common. Oh my gosh. It's, and I, yeah, I know it is. I mean, I grew up in a home where I just didn't talk about it because it would make my mom sad. Right. You know, so. Right. Yeah. They're still telling little boys, be strong. You're the man of the family now. Yes. Like yes. who thought that up in 1950? It's not real. Yes. Right. It was real when I have, I do genealogy. I have an ancestor whose entire family died of the black plague in the 1400s. Right. Oh, wow. Everybody died. All of the siblings, the parents, the grandparents, everybody in this house died except her for generations. Oh, wow. Every family had a child with that name. Okay, she was the person of the family. That is not true in 2021. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be the man of the family. You don't have to be strong. Stop it. Right? And you don't have to be happy that you've got another angel. Because if they're watching over you all the time, then that means they're watching you go to the bathroom and it's creepy. Right? Well, and you'd rather have them here, right? They're not supposed exactly. to be. Exactly. And I give kids permission to say that. Yeah. When someone says that to you, what do you think? kids speak i wish they were here then tell somebody that yeah they won't say it again i guarantee it yep guarantee it be the best lesson they could ever teach that person too Mm -hmm. i spoke to a church um, recently on grief and they um they asked for some things and that was one of the things don't tell people what to feel and don't tell them not to speak and give them space and don't say they're in a better place And the pastor put up this giant amen across the entire screen. I love doing church speakings when they do that. Right. And they took the tips and put them in the front of the church and sent me a picture because they're doing grief differently now. Right. No more messages about this was a plan. This was an illness. 
It's a virus we can't stop. It, it's not because somebody wanted them dead. But let's let's stop the messaging. Right? <laughs> yes. Stop the messaging. Yes. Right. Let's do grief better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what gives you the most hope for the future and the most joy? The most joy is sometimes just waking up, but mostly it's knowing that the work that I do is making a difference and that it gives me space for my family because I'm now grandma of two, about to be grandma of three. Oh, congratulations. Right. Um, and I have my oodles at home. And so we, you know, being able to watch their little faces is um, a lot of fun. And uh, the most hope is that we're doing more of these and more people are talking and occupying the space and breaking into the conversations to talk about the fact that we can do grief and not make it forever. Yeah. That's huge yeah. for me. And Same if we here. can, if we can stop that for, you know, one person, we, we've done our work. Well, and you break the cycle too. I think mm-hmm. if you recognize that there is more to your life than being a griever mm-hmm. and that grief is your life, because just as you can emulate healing and being supportive and all the positive things of grief, like mm-hmm. you can emulate the story that this is how it's always going to be. And what story do you want to emulate to your children? Right. And the more we talk about grief and loss, the better off all of us are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I just really appreciate having been asked to be here and being able to say, share the space with you. Yes. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And where mm-hmm. can people find you if they'd like to connect with you? Oh gosh, just Google Jill Johnson Young. But um, no, I have the rebelliouswidow.com that has the book. Um, and you don't have to buy the book there. You can buy it multiple places. It has free downloads, however, that go with the book. So um, if you're a caregiver, it has an actual caregiver notebook you can download and create at home at no cost. And it has worksheets for doing the grief work um, also at no cost because I'm still a social worker. Um, And then jilljohnsonyoung.com has resources for all kinds of losses. It's got sibling loss and pet loss and all the things that are not usually included in loss. Um, And it also has the courses that I teach and podcasts are posted there. And then the Friday Grief Chat on Facebook. We're there every Friday at 10 a.m. And it's called Humor, Grace, and Grief. And we just talk about grief in the context of being able to also find humor in life and find the grace in what's occurred. So that's a good place to find me. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn and all the things, Pinterest, all the, if there's a space, Jill is there. So yeah. the book, if they purchase the book on Amazon, do they still get all of the, the workshops? The downloads are free. You don't have to buy the book at all and you get the downloads. Oh, okay. Yeah, I created it that way. And my publisher was like, are you serious? I'm a social worker and I want people to be able to do this better. And so, yes, everybody gets access. This is not a members only moment. Yeah. Wonderful. That's how it should be. <laughs> and I will share all of that information in the show notes. Thank you. And again, thank you so much for sharing your story of hope and doing grief differently. And thank you so much. You're welcome. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it. 
because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.